From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The history of an anti-Chinese riot in Denver is poorly understood, and activists say a plaque marking the 1880 event isn't making things any clearer. The problem with this depiction is it emphasizes frontier heroes without addressing the victims. We'll get a better understanding of the anti-Asian forces that were at play, and to some extent still are. Then a century-old flood proves Pueblo's metal. And later, a quarter of cowboys on the frontier were black, including Bill Pickett, who invented the rodeo sport of bulldogging. It's one of the equine epics in the new book Horse Crazy by Sarah Maslin Neer of the New York Times. Why she'd been reluctant to indulge her own love of horses publicly. On the new episode of Systemic, Meet a law enforcement leader who tries to change things from the top down and sometimes faces resistance from her own officers. So we had a meeting and I said, I know how officers behave. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't like the undertone, I don't like the overtone, and I will not stand for it. And Find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There was a bustling Chinatown in Denver in the late 1800s in the neighborhood we now know as Lower Downtown. Hundreds of Chinese immigrants lived and worked there. In 1880, a fight broke out and became a deadly riot fueled by anti-Asian hatred. A Chinese man was lynched and many Chinese-run businesses were destroyed. There is a plaque marking this event, but critics say it whitewashes the history, and a group called Colorado Asian Pacific United wants it replaced. Board members Shana Medeiros Twilaeva and Joy Ha are with us, and welcome to you both. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Thanks for having us today. Absolutely. So the plaque's about eight sentences, and it's titled, Hop Alley, Chinese Riot of 1880. Shauna, what about that framing concerns you? Um, Well, first of all, Hop Alley is a derogatory term that refers to um, the opium dens that were in the area at the time. And it uh, insinuates that the Chinese community of the time were just, quote unquote, hopped up on opium. Um, and as if they were the only ones that were um, using a lot of the other um, individuals in the area of white um, individuals as well um, would seek refuge in these opium dens as well. Um, and so we feel that is a derogatory term to refer to it as Hop Alley. Um, also, the plaque says Chinese race riot, um, which doesn't differentiate um that it was actually an anti-Chinese race riot. Um, It kind of leads the reader to believe that this was um, started by the Chinese community, whereas it's quite the opposite. Yeah, and the text of the plaque goes even further into the opium dens. It seems to place them rather prominently in the story. And you think that's emphasizing the wrong thing, I think I hear you saying, Shauna. Yes, we believe so. Um, I mean, obviously, there were some opium dens there. um, But the Chinese communities, I mean, is 
part of uh, the history and the culture and not not abused typically. Um, and so it's just insinuating that um, others in the area weren't uh, using as well. And so it paints a very negative picture um, on the Chinese community of the time. And I know that uh, you both think the plaque focuses on the incidents of 1880 through a kind of white savior lens. Uh, maybe, Joy, you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So a white savior um, story focuses a lot on the people that were Caucasian. So it's not to say that um, there weren't any folks that stood up against this horrific event. Um, it is to say, however, that the focus is largely on these folks. There is no mention of um, what the Chinatown was like at the time, um, what had um happened in terms of the perspective of a Chinese person. And it really just has the story seem um, whitewashed, as you mentioned earlier, that it shows this perspective of a benevolent um, one or two white people that had attempted to help, as opposed to saying there was a bustling Chinatown, um, these Chinese people had these types of occupations and lives and which were disturbed and ruined by the anti-Chinese race riot. You mentioned that this was fueled uh, by anti-Chinese sentiment. And we reached out to CU Boulder historian William Way. He's the author of Asians in Colorado. And he expounded for us on that hatred at the time. For a while, there had been developing in Denver and across the state an anti-Chinese sentiment. This sentiment was referred to nationally as the Chinese question, which revolved around the issue of whether more Chinese should be allowed to immigrate to the country, where, by the way, they had contributed significantly to the development of the infrastructure of the nation. And many of the rioters, like those around the state and the country, felt threatened by the Chinese. They felt threatened by Chinese economically as well as socially. And so that perception of the other as a threat is key to this story. I wonder uh, for you, Shauna, if that sentiment still resonates today. Absolutely. I think we're seeing it a lot, um, given the hateful rhetoric that um, has been built over the last um, four or five years. Um, we're seeing um, a lot of folks are calling it an uptick in um, anti-Asian uh, violence and, and hate crimes. But in all honesty, this is a history that has um, has been around since the beginning um, and, and seen throughout other communities of color. And so for the anti-Asian um, hate that's going on right now, this has been going on for a long time, um, but it's starting to um, become a bigger issue again, with, like I said, with the rhetoric that was um, tossed around over the last four years um, with the blaming of coronavirus on Chinese individuals and just a lot of the misinformation that's out there. Um, so it's definitely, definitely very apparent today. Joy, do you want to share a few words on the idea of the relevance of this history today? Absolutely. Um, like China was mentioning, there has been a um, large increase in anti-Asian hate. And it basically goes to show that 
things haven't changed as much as we have would have liked since that race riot in 1880. Although we'd like to say that we've made progress, we're becoming a more equal society, and in some ways, yes. But the fact of the matter is, um, there are a lot of things that have been happening that have been happened happening since we arrived here. And additionally, it goes to show how fear really serves as a vehicle for hate. Mm. So previously, um, in eighteen eighty and prior, there was the fear that Chinese individuals were taking over the economy. They were um, threatening the fabric of what it meant to be American, despite the fact that um, a lot of them had came over and lived here their entire lives and, you know, were American in several senses. Um, Additionally, now the fear that drives the hate is the fear that, like Shauna mentioned, that the virus was perpetrated by um, every single Chinese or even Asian looking individual that you see. And um, because of that, a lot of folks have this um, sentiment that Chinese or um, Asian folks, as a lot of folks that have a sentiment can't can't tell the difference, um, don't belong here, even if folks have been here for generations. After the riot in 1880, Denver's Chinatown was rebuilt. But the targeting continued, including from the federal government, uh, says historian William Way. They uh, rebuilt the community, but the community could not sustain itself, mainly because soon after the anti-Chinese riot, the federal government had enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, which excluded Chinese laborers from entering the country, which means that the numbers of Chinese were going to decline since there wasn't going to be an influx of more Chinese to augment the population. And so that painful history continued beyond the riot. You know, it's quite informal what I'm about to share, but I was asking friends prior to this segment if they'd heard of the 1880 anti-Chinese riot in Denver, and I'd say that the bulk of them had not. I'm curious if either of you learned about this event in school yourselves, Shauna? Most definitely not. And honestly, um, I'm going to show my ignorance here as well. I didn't know about this until a group of us met at the plaque um, and with uh, William Way there uh, shared the history. And and that's when me personally, I I learned more about it. Um, This is definitely uh, another example of of racism by erasure. Um, And it is an important history to to know. And that's why we feel um, that the Denver community and Colorado uh, needs to know that that this history happened so that we can properly honor and and um, celebrate the Chinese community of today. Joy, did you learn about this in school? Absolutely not. not there were a lot of things about Asian history or Asian American history, I should say, that were not taught in school and I had to actually seek out myself. And specifically to um, the anti-Chinese race riot in Denver, I only learned about this a few years ago. So um, even compared to Shauna, it was, uh, just a few years earlier, really not that much earlier. And um, I think for us learning about it, we saw that there was a huge need to educate the public on, you know, what used to exist here and that, um, you know, the influx of Chinese immigrants isn't 
a recent thing. We've been here for, you know, quite a bit of time. Um, and I think it really goes to show that even though there are so many different communities of color, different minorities and um, folks of different identities that exist in America that are American, their histories are not taught. Right, because Chinese American history is still American history. Um, however, that is not something that uh, we commonly understand. And even now, when we look at Lodo, there is no sign that a Chinatown existed. There's no way that you would know other than reading that very small plaque, mm. um, which in itself is um, problematic, like we mentioned earlier. I, I just want to speak briefly to what you'd like to replace the plaque with, and I know there are some obstacles to doing so. I think it's on private property. Uh, what, ideally, Shauna, would you see in its place? And and let me just say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with two members of CAPU, Colorado Asian Pacific United. They have a real interest in fleshing out the story of an anti-Chinese race riot in Denver in 1880. Uh, what would you like to see, Sean, in its place? So for our small organization, we've discussed a lot of options. Uh, we've been working uh, closely with, with the Lodo group as well so that we can ensure that we're collaborating properly um, and with respect to their area and their district as well. Um, first, we would like to revise uh, the plaque itself, um, change up the content to be uh, more accurate, to reflect the history uh, more efficiently. Um, and then we'd also like to uh, install some sort of element that's a little bit more uh, monumental, as our architect um, loves to say, um, something that is worthy of the history. Uh, the plaque is just very small. It's um, If you're walking down the street, it's very easy to just pass by. And so what we would like to do is to take down that plaque, um, give it to History Colorado to preserve, obviously, mm. um, and then um, install a new uh, interactive uh, modern uh, yet uh, historic um, marker. So something larger, it sounds like, than a plaque. And yes. Yeah, what do you think are the obstacles to getting there at this point, Joy? I think I, I'm right to say that this is on private property, so there's some negotiating that would have to happen, right? Absolutely. So we are trying to get in touch with the property owners to see if we're able to take down the plaque, if we're able to um, install some other type of marker to show a more um, a more equitable, I guess you could say, history. And um, in the future, too, we're looking to potentially have a mural um, on their wall. So we are just trying to make sure that we are in constant communication and just talking about the future of that particular area. And as simple as it might sound to reach out to the owner, I think there's some ownership issues right now with this property. So that's complicating the picture, if I have that right. And I do understand that your goal is to do this by the All-Stars game. Is that correct, Shauna? So we would really love to at least remove the plaque uh, by the All-Star Game. There's a few um, Chinese families that are here that have been here for five, six, seven generations. Um, and we've contacted a few of them uh, to discuss our intentions and our plans. And we would really love to incorporate them in um, the actual removal of the plaque. We think it would be just a great, uh, a great kind of... Um, 
ceremony to take that down. Um, and so what, while it not, might not be realistic for us to install a new marker um, as of yet, at least at the very least, we would like to take the plaque down um, and build some momentum around um, reinstalling a new marker. I guess before all of the eyes of folks who might visit Colorado for the All-Stars game are on it, that's the idea. Absolutely. And um, I just wanted to make another point as well. Uh, There are two other sites um, aside from the building that's on 20th and Blake is uh, where the plaque currently is. Um, There are two other sites that we are interested in um, honoring. And one of them is um, the site behind uh, BD's Mongolian, where um, it's believed that the riot actually broke out. Um, and then also the area where the individual named Luke Young was lynched and he was actually hung from a lamppost and, and was killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we would like to more accurately uh, tell the story of the entire um, race riot. So that is remembered and, and properly, properly honored. So where the current plaque is on 20th and Blake is really on the outskirts of where the original Chinatown um, existed. Mm. And so... Um, our group kind of sees that as uh, like a symbolic manifestation of how the Chinese community of the time was actually pushed out to the outskirts of, of the city. So, and so there, there might actually be to... multiple locations, it sounds like, that you'd want yes, to honor yes. to tell a fuller story. Shauna Madeira's Twila Epa there and Joy Ha, members of Colorado Asian Pacific United. They want new markers throughout lower downtown Denver to tell the fuller story of that anti-Chinese riot in 1880. We'll be right back with a different chapter of history that still shapes the state today. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After massive rainfall and snowmelt, Pueblo's levees along the Arkansas River gave way 100 years ago this month. It remains one of Colorado's deadliest, most destructive floods. For KRCC, Shauna Lewis reports how it helped reshape the city. Welcome to the historic Arkansas Riverwalk of Pueblo. My name's Anthony. I'll be your boat captain today. Anthony Vigil pilots a tourist boat on the peaceful waterway known as the Harp that meanders through downtown Pueblo. This is the Arkansas River's original channel the scene of so much devastation back in 1921. Local historian John Corber's father worked for the railroad back then. And he was on the last train, one of the last trains that came in from Salida. And when he arrived in Pueblo, the water was already up almost knee deep. Corber wasn't born yet, but says his father waded out of the station and made his way home up on a nearby bluff. Well, my mother had been uh, keeping track of things, and she said that they were forecasting more wet weather. She said, maybe better go down and get your father and bring him up to the house. Corber's grandfather said he'd been through rainstorms before. My grandfather apparently was a stubborn old German, 
And he says, no, sir, I'm not leaving my house. Within hours, the river flooded into the business district. People ran for higher ground, climbed to the upper floors of buildings, or into trees. Peggy Wilcox helped research the Pueblo County Historical Society's book, Mad River. She says the raging waters carried debris, boxcars, automobiles, and drowning livestock. One of the things the flood victims all said is that the sounds haunted them. There was lots of crashing of buildings falling and people calling for help. The sounds of that night were horrendous. At its highest, the water surged more than 14 feet deep in some places. Fires ignited in lumberyards, launching masses of flaming timbers into the roiling dark deluge. Those fires added to the terror for people. She says the city awoke the next morning to find houses ripped from foundations, shops gutted, bridges torn out, and twisted railroad tracks. The water was still five feet deep in places. Elsewhere, mud piled up, dotted with animal carcasses. And there was the human death toll. Wilcox says initial estimates were around 500. But victims may have been washed downriver or were just never accounted for. We will never know how many people perished. There is no way to know. The local mortuary had to line corpses on Main Street. John Corber's grandfather was among them, identified only by the ring he wore. Although power lines and phones were out, officials sent a telegram north, most likely from the steel mills offices in an area outside the flood zone. Wilcox says within a few days, a work order was issued for men. No idlers would be allowed. Either you volunteered to go work for 43 cents an hour, or they arrested you and you worked for free. Eventually, the Army arrived with heavy equipment. Relief donations rolled in from around the nation. Property damage was estimated to be in the hundreds of millions in today's dollars. The question is not just how much it costs to repair a single structure. That's CSU Pueblo history professor Jonathan Reese. But what you need to do to prevent this from happening again, and what you're not doing because you're spending all that money to repair the damage, when you include those opportunity costs, it's incalculable. It really comes to define, I think, the entire future of the town from that point on. Footing the bill for updating the city's flood protection fell on Puebloans. Engineers moved the Arkansas River Channel about a third of a mile away from its original course where the Harp is now and built a massive new three-mile-long levee, as well as a dam upstream to help control water flow. Maria Sanchez Tucker grew up in Pueblo and used to run the Bessemer Historical Society and manage special collections at the library. It's sort of in our genetic makeup if you're from Pueblo because people who have had generations of family members remember what took place. It was an awful experience for many people to go through, but it was also one that shows resilience and how we can come together to support each other during a crisis. Back on the harp, you can see how Puebloans worked for a better future by turning the abandoned former river channel into an asset. The river walk is about a mile and a half long if you were to walk the whole thing, including Lake Elizabeth. And then right across the street, we have our pedal boats. Thanks for coming out today. Please remain seated till we're fully docked and tied up and enjoy the rest of your day. For KRCC News, I'm Shauna Lewis in Pueblo. That new levy Shauna mentioned was dedicated just this past Thursday, at which point they also honored flood victims. Speakers included Pueblo County Commissioner Garrison Ortiz. Pueblo is tough. We're tough as still. Our resiliency is deep as any flood. And Pueblo always comes back better and stronger than ever before. 
It took seven years and $25 million to update the levee to protect downtown Pueblo. There's a walking trail on top and a pedestrian suspension bridge that connects to the bike path along the river. Muralists are already using the levee's concrete as a giant canvas. Governor Jared Polis says the project carries statewide significance. To build a positive and lasting legacy out of the rubble. Forging new paths in the century-long wake of the 1921 Pueblo flood, it takes the homegrown spirit of grit, perseverance, and sheer will to build on our progress. Read more of Shauna Lewis's reporting on the historic 1921 flood and its impacts at krcc.org. Horses lend themselves to stories, writes Sarah Maslin Neer. And Maslinier knows stories. She has crisscrossed the globe as a staff reporter for the New York Times. And if there's even a little free time when she's on assignment, she always checks out a place's horses. Her new book is Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. She has a chapter on how black cowboys have largely been left out of the story of the American West. And Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. In this book, you describe a lifelong love of horses, but in the past, you've been hesitant to talk about this passion. Why? Yes. So my book was my coming out as a horse girl. As a reporter for the New York Times, I cover incredibly challenging, dark corners of the world. And I was always concerned that If I were to reveal that so much of my soul is caught up with ponies, I wouldn't be taken seriously. And then I was speaking to a friend, a fellow writer, and about what I might write a book about. And he said to me, "Uh, why not horses? That's your main passion. And I explained my uh, self-consciousness. And he said the immortal words. He said, Sarah, passion translates. That's all people want to read. Whatever it's about, it has to be a true passion and they'll get it. And that began my coming out. And actually, Ryan, ever since uh, my bosses say, you know, there's a lot of horse news in the New York Times lately. I wonder what that has to do with you. So I've uh, I've included it in my journalism as well a little bit. Well, I'm thinking, of course, of the Kentucky Derby winner uh, in the news. Mm-hmm. I'll ask you about that maybe just a little bit later. But indeed, uh, these these intersect the idea of the horse world and then the general news beats that you cover. <laughs> Is there any part of you that was afraid to uh, come out, as you say, because I think of the horse world, the equine world, as so rarefied in some ways, as, as so wealthy and maybe privileged? Was that part of this? You're absolutely right. And I'm the daughter of immigrants of a Holocaust survivor. And in the book, I unpack why I was so committed to this sport in which I'm an outsider, right? This is the world of Jackie Onassis and uh, it's highly elite and waspy. And I felt like an interloper. Um, And and that's exactly it. Um, My compulsion to be involved in this sport, I realized was sort of passing, much in the way uh, my father had survived uh, Hitler by having a false identity as a Catholic and hiding in plain sight, I actually felt that intergenerational trauma of hiding in plain sight in the horse world. Hmm. It's an interesting parallel to draw. I, I love how you describe horses as having piano key teeth. I don't, mm-hmm. think, I don't think I'll ever see them quite the same way again if I look a gift horse in the mouth. Um, You name each chapter of the book after a prominent horse you've met. And Swamper is the title of the chapter about black cowboys. Who is Swamper? 
Sure. So Swamper is an ungainly old nag uh, who has uh, quite a bit of talent in him. And he was an overlooked horse in which a cowboy by the name of Larry Callis found beauty. And that's a, a really perfect parallel to the story of the erasure of the black cowboys. And I should note, um, I worked for a black cowboy in Harlem uh, at the New York City uh, Riding Academy, who was the founder of the Black Rodeo. And we used to have that on Lenox Avenue in New York City, where I'm from, believe it or not. Um, and, and in the erasure of black cowboys from the American story, one in four cowboys in the pioneer era were black. I saw a parallel to my own people's almost literal erasure from this planet in what my father went through. So I became very committed to that story. So I decided to ride out uh, with Larry Callis, who was actually a postman who spent all of his life savings to found the Museum of the Black Cowboy in Rosenberg, Texas, which is his shrine to cowboys who are enshrined really nowhere else. Uh, the Bill Pickett Rodeo, uh, which is a black uh, cowboy rodeo that actually takes place in Denver, Colorado with the MLK Rodeo of Champions on yeah. pause this year, unfortunately, um, is named after Bill K Pickett. He invented the rodeo sport of bulldogging, which is wrestling a calf to the ground. Um, but he was only inducted into the Rodeo Hall of Fame in 1989, uh, even though he invented it 100 years before. And he was its first black inductee. And uh, that erasure is something I unpack in Horse Crazy. I think, of course, of Denver's Black American West Museum, which fills in many of the blanks in this history as well. And there's a lot I want to follow up on. So Larry Callis owns this horse, Swamper, and um, a cowboy, a former country crooner. And what is his sense of why this history was either, it's hard to say lost, because in, in some ways it was never told in the first place to the broader public. But what is his sense of how this was erased? Why this wasn't better told? Yes, and I, I think you're exactly right. It's not lost, that's a passive uh, descriptor, right? It was erased. It was removed from the narrative. When you see John Wayne on the silver screen, that's the archetypal cowboy. Um, there are no black faces under Stetsons uh, in the cowboy westerns of our mind. And yet they were there. The West was integrated, in fact, because life is just too darn hard to keep up those same divisions. Uh, that were there on the East Coast, right? You had to all work together to, to wrangle those cows and, and, and live that frontier life. Um, there is a historian who's recently passed away, um, who is a Jew from New York City, uh, just like me, uh, of black cowboys and uh, uh, Lauren Katz. And he says the most incredible thing. He says, um, if black people came into the American narrative, they came at the end of a whip and in chains. And that's not the American cowboy story people wanted to remember. And that's mm. why they've been removed. Because if the story of the American pioneer spirit, right, as the daughter of immigrants, that feels like it's my birthright too, right? That's somehow the American story. And if you realize some Americans in that story were impressed into it brutally, um, that's not the best of us. And the cowboy story is supposed to be the best of us. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Sarah Maslinier of the New York Times, who crisscrosses the globe covering all sorts of news, but has written a book now called Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. So we rang up Larry Callis, director of the Black Cowboy Museum in Texas, 
uh, I'll say that he has a condition now that affects his vocal cords, which actually sidelined his country music career. And it means that he can be difficult to understand on the phone. So I'm just going to read some of what he told my producer, Carla Jimenez. My dad was a cowboy. My grandpa was a cowboy. All my uncles were cowboys. I found out all my relatives were cowboys in the 1850s. I didn't know my great-great-grandfathers were cowboys. We didn't know our history. When we were taught history, we weren't taught the right history, especially about the black cowboy. Callis goes on to say, you know what the white guy was doing? He was imitating the black cowboys. The white man wasn't called a cowboy in the 1800s. He was called a cow hand or a cow man or cow puncher or cow driver. But never did you call a white man a cowboy because he said, I am not your slave. I'm not your servant because that was the slang then. Uh, help mm-hmm. us unpack that. Even the term cowboy may have racist roots, right? Uh, yes, exactly right. So in the era of the terms coinage, which was uh, the late uh, 1700s um, and uh, early 18, uh, 1800s, uh, you wouldn't call a white man a boy. It was pejorative. You had a yard boy, you know, you had a sheep boy, you had a house boy, and those were all enslaved people. And so there are some uh, etymologists that believe the root of that word is speaks to the blackness of the profession. And I'll go one further. We should talk about the horse racing world a little bit, Ryan, okay. because, you know, the derby and all that. Yep. Um, uh, the entire thoroughbred industry was predicated on enslaved human labor. Uh, people were bought from West Africa specifically for their equestrian prowess. And the first ever winner of the first ever Kentucky Derby was a black man. And the trainer of that horse was a freed slave. And in the early days of American thoroughbred racing, people ran the horses they owned with the humans they owned on their backs. And that is not a history that has uh, been brought to light uh, in the same way that it has, you know, sports teams have changed their mascots and plantations have had a a national reckoning. Um, But American thoroughbred horse racing owes its riches to enslaved black people. There's something I want to circle back to, and you indeed write about this in the book Horse Crazy, um, and that is working for a horseman in in New York City, uh, yep. like kind of on these islands that are between, what is it, like Queens and Manhattan, I think. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's just going to strike people as surprising, I think, that there would be horse barns smack dab in the middle of New York City. What's the story here? Sure. So I'll let you know if you're horse crazy, like I am, like Larry is, like so many of us are, you will find horses by hook or by crook wherever you can. And I'm an unusual horsewoman in that I'm born and raised in New York City. Uh, I used to ride horses in a four-story apartment building, believe it or not, where the horses climbed up and down stairs to their stables upstairs. (laughs) Yes, uh, (laughs) it closed in 2007. I guess that would be a that would be a trot up instead of a walk up. I yeah. Okay. <laughs> nice. I should have used that. Um, and uh, I uh, was a mounted parks enforcement officer uh, chasing truants in Central Park as a teenager when I myself was a truant on my days off. And then I ended up working on a little island in the middle of the Harlem River uh, for Dr. Blair and Mrs. Blair. Do not call them by their first name. They are Dr. and Mrs. Blair, uh, who ran a little riding academy. And we... 
uh, would have inner city children come and pet the horses and I would uh, demonstrate uh, different uh, paces on the horses. Um, but we only had three horses and we would have 40 students a day. And one day I said to Dr. Blair, I spoke up to him for the first time. I said, Dr. Blair, um, you know, I, I felt like I was just demonstrating my privilege as a, a, a well-off white woman here on a horse in front of these children. And I felt very self-conscious. I said, what are we teaching at this riding academy where we don't teach riding? You know, we just teach history of, of, of cowboys and black cowboys to these mostly minority children. And he said to me, Sarah, I am showing these children that they're part of the American story and that they've always been and that there are other lives out there for them than the ones they feel that are inevitable laid out before them in these inner city worlds they're from. And he said, Sarah, we are not teaching children to ride. We're teaching children to dream. Hmm. And I will never forget those words. And that is the importance of telling these erased stories, uh, much like the people who came before me in the segment did about the Chinese uh, anti-Chinese race riots. Um, you are telling people that they are part of the American story and they always have been. And not only are horses their heritage, America is their heritage too. Uh, you may have mentioned this. I want to make sure that we flag it. Here, Dr. Blair started the now-defunct New York City Black World Championship Rodeo. And um, the, the, so the barns where you worked, are they no longer around or the academy? No, they're around. Uh, Dr. Blair is in his 90s and he is still running it. And wow. uh, he had a pause for COVID, um, but he's, he's pretty unstoppable. He is a force of nature, as is Mrs. Blair. It's amazing how you write. The Academy is under the gritty shadow of a psychiatric ward. I mean, it's really kind of <laughs> sho shoved in there in New York City. Um, okay, a newsy question. So this year's Kentucky Derby winner, Medina Spirit, uh, has grabbed a lot of headlines having tested positive for doping twice now. I'll just say that disqualification <laughs> looms. Last I checked, the trainer's been suspended. Do we, can we get your take on this story? Yeah, for sure. A lot of what I unpack in my book, Horse Crazy, is that tension between uh, having these animals, adoring them, and really um, making them work for us, right? The human-horse relationship, it's not a dance, as some people would say, would say, with two willing partners who appreciate it in the same way. Um, one is being made to capitulate, and in that, there's a tremendous uh, potential for abuse. And that ethic of care has to be uh, primary when you are engaging in such a, a, a slanted power dynamic with these hmm. fragile creatures. And in the racing world, when money is given the primacy, uh, we've seen uh, that power dynamic gets deeply abused. In American thoroughbred racing, about 24 horses on average die a week. Uh, in Europe, almost none die. And that is because we have permissive drug culture among these animals that cause catastrophic, catastrophic blowout. We have no fines. Uh, Bob Baffert, the owner of Medina Spirit, has been found 30 times to have drugged his horses, and he's still running animals in the derby. And that is because he gets a little fine, and it's the cost of doing business. So there's something dangerously wrong with thoroughbred racing, but something can go dangerously wrong when you have imbalances of power anywhere and it needs to be course corrected or the sport is over what an interesting way to describe the human equine relationship as a power dynamic and did you say 24 thoroughbreds die a week 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, that's uh, from reporting by my colleague uh, Walt Bogdanich in the New York Times. My goodness. And then in contrast, as you say, to Europe, uh, I mean, it really is a contrast. Mm. I have what might sound like a silly question, but have you thought about whether fundamentally horses like to be ridden? Absolutely. I and mean, it is something I unpack. I My answer to that question is... Um, it's not a question uh, of like or enjoy. These are creatures that for millennia have been bred uh, to be a perfect complement to humankind. We've created them to be incredibly useful for us. Their backs are broad to carry us, but their legs are spindly and their femurs are the size of a human femur carrying 1,200 pounds. Uh, We've made them pretty useless to themselves, but of incredible utility and meaning for us. And so in that creature we have created in our image, um, we owe it a tremendous amount. And wild horses, uh, as you know, Ryan, are are not wild. They're feral. Uh, They are bred horses that have been released uh, in to the the so-called wild. And and that's why they have such a a challenging time with them. They're not really meant to be there, Mm. Um, but they're they're not meant to exist outside of us. We've created something holy for us and we owe it a tremendous amount. And as I say in my book, Horse Crazy- Uh, Just briefly. um, Oh. I'm I'm actually gonna, I'm I'm, I'm so sorry. This is such an inelegant way to end a conversation, clunk. I've just fallen no, fallen off the horse. Sentence. But that's that's Sarah Maslin Mir, author of Horse Crazy. She's also a reporter for the New York Times. Uh, while we're on the subject of books, you have an opportunity to read with us. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. So we have made the next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. The author is pastor and counselor Paula Stone Williams. Her memoir is about walking in other people's shoes, and Williams may be best known for her TED Talks. There is no way a well-educated white male can understand how much the culture is tilted in his favor. There's no way he can understand it because it's all he's ever known and all he ever will know. And conversely, there's no way that a woman can understand the full import of that because being a female is all she's ever known. She might have an inkling that she's working twice as hard for half as much, but she has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know, I was that guy. And I thought I was one of the good guys. Sensitive to women, egalitarian. Williams is a trans woman, and she writes about all she lost and learned and gained after her transition at age 60. The book is called As a Woman. Get a hold of a copy and then join us June 30th for a virtual discussion. You can ask the author questions and we'll record the event to air later right here. Tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. Disability rights groups want to make digital information more accessible, and they may get what they've been fighting for in the waning days of the state legislative session. CPR's Benta Berkland reports. When COVID-19 first hit, like many Coloradans, Scott Labar searched for as much information as he could find. But the 52-year-old attorney from Centennial couldn't access everything on the state's websites. I am totally blind. You know, I don't 
have any usable vision at all. So he uses technology called a screen reader. The software converts text to speech. I have access to information essentially with the same ease of use as you or somebody who doesn't have a disability like mine. But this software was not compatible with the state health department's website. He says he's grateful Colorado fixed a lot of those problems relatively quickly. But even today, it's not perfect. Okay, so that's working a lot better than it used to. I'm trying to find something that's not working. <laughs> well, here. Data visualization graphic. I have no idea what this is. Disability rights advocates say many state and local government websites have issues like this and don't comply with the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA has been law for 30 plus years. And the fact that this can still happen, that's why this law is needed. That's Democratic Representative David Ortiz. His bill would set aside about $300,000 to help local governments comply with the ADA. Ortiz is the first state lawmaker to use a wheelchair. He's made it a point during his first year at the Capitol to try to highlight issues people living with disabilities face. We are talking about basic access, not convenience. Access that everybody else that's able-bodied takes for granted. Even though the bill has widespread bipartisan support and a relatively small cost, passage wasn't guaranteed. At one point, the funding was in question. The Budget Committee has made money available just in the last week. For Labar, he hopes this measure will make things easier for all people with disabilities. We're doing this because access to digital information now is critical to life. State and local governments would have three years to get their websites ADA compatible. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. For the past 14 years, El Paso County has been represented in Congress by Doug Lamborn. It's been Colorado's safest Republican seat, but with changing demographics, he may face more challenges from the left and the right. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Constituent services is something Lamborn's office gets high marks for. Take Crystal Hearn. She thought the Veterans Administration office should be doing more for her father. She says he developed Parkinson's disease after being exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam. I mean, I had called the VA multiple times and just, I mean, literally, I think at this point, had left like four or five messages and was just getting nowhere. She mentioned this to a staffer for Representative Lamborn. By the next day, Hearn had a meeting with a local VA official. For us, it was fantastic. I am so grateful to them because I still probably would be, I mean, I just didn't know what to do and I was overwhelmed. Since he was first elected in 2006, Lamborn has kept his job, generally by double-digit margins. One of the main reasons, according to Sarah Hegedorn, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, is his conservative voting record. He does vote in alignment with CD5. His representation record is right on with what the majority of voters in this district want. But for all the Hearns out there who appreciate his constituent services or voting record, there are voters frustrated with Lamborn's overall performance in Congress. He's faced many challenges from the right, including one in 2016 from Calandra Vargas at the Republican Assembly. She came within 18 votes of having Lamborn kicked off of the ballot after she gave an electrifying speech. Do you want a congresswoman who's an outspoken leader, who won't settle, who's a team player, who will confront liberals and believes that... Calandra O'Hanlon, as she's now called, is no longer in politics. She was motivated to run then because she was disappointed that someone in such a safe seat wasn't leading from the front. 
there are so many other leaders in D.C. that are in the spotlight. They, they're being interviewed all the time. They're debating. Uh, they're, they're all over the place of really being influencers. Republican consultant Tyler Sandberg doesn't think that desire by some on the right to have a more vocal representative is going to go away. Just look at Lauren Boebert's primary upset of incumbent Scott Tipton. Sandberg thinks that should be a cautionary tale for Lamborn. That a conservative dynamic leader from the right can show up out of nowhere and really uh, upset things. Lamborn is being more critical of the Biden administration on Twitter, and he joined Boebert in voting against Biden's election certification, a move that impressed O'Hanlon. But many Lamborn supporters say, overall, that's just not his style. Kevin Grantham, a former state senator and current Fremont County commissioner, says a safe seat also lends itself to playing it safe. As long as you're not out in front, you're not sticking your foot in your mouth. There's little chance of that with Lamborn. He doesn't hold many town halls or even telephone town halls compared to other members of the delegation. His office declined multiple requests for an interview and didn't answer questions CPR News submitted about his record. That doesn't surprise Grantham, who is generally pleased with Lamborn's work. He's probably better served by, you know, putting his head down and voting correctly. And and maybe he does a whole lot more behind the scenes than I realize. Wayne Williams, the at-large city council member for Colorado Springs, says Lamborn delivers on the things that really matter to the district. Doug's position on the Armed Services Committee has been beneficial to El Paso County in terms of number of projects, number of dollars that are coming in have all played a role. But two of the largest legislative packages helping Colorado and people in his district right now didn't get Lamborn's vote, the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan, plans popular with Democrats and unaffiliated voters. And this could matter down the road, because while Lamborn's record may play well with conservatives in the district now, UCCS's Sarah Hegedorn points out Colorado Springs and El Paso County are changing. And I think whoever represents us needs to be aware of that. We're getting younger and more unaffiliated. Colorado Springs had the largest swing in the country away from supporting Trump between the 2016 and 2020 elections. And that data point gives Democrats a little hope. Ultimately, these are the forces Lamborn will have to keep an eye on. Conservative voters looking for a show horse in Congress and other voters wanting a stronger workhorse and the risk that either could try to put him out to pasture. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.